Hi, I'm Michael, and welcome to Beyond the Screenplay. Today we are talking about The Matrix, and I'm joined by part of the Lessons from the Screenplay team, writer Trisha Aran. Hello, everybody. And writer Brian Bittner. Hello. And we have an exciting guest today, YouTuber, podcaster, Patrick Willems is here. Patrick, hey, guys. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thank, thank Hi. you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited to have you here because you have made videos about The Matrix and you have a podcast all about Keanu. That is very true. <laughs> Can't get enough Keanu, right? Enough of Keanu. Enough of Keanu, yes. Um, Sorry, so... wait, which Keanu? Reed. Oh, Reed. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that that one. Right, right. So maybe, Patrick, can you tell me when you like first encountered The Matrix, when you fell in love with it? Yes, I, I can tell you in great detail. <laughs> uh, I'll skip some of that detail. Uh, so the, the Matrix, I think for probably for a lot of us people of like a similar generation was like a pivotal film in my life uh i didn't see it in theaters because i was like i think 11 and it was rated r i knew that i right. couldn't see that in theaters but i i was like curious about it and i would kind of like you know like read reviews about it and i was like this sounds like a thing that i want to see and then when it came out on vhs i asked my mom if she would rent it and we could watch it and uh it like it changed my life I guess <laughs> to put it mildly it's the movie that made me want to make movies yeah. uh, I was just I would just rent it over and over and over again it was the first DVD I ever owned mm -hmm. it was the first Blu-ray I ever owned I think at this point I might own four copies of it across different formats uh, I've seen it more times than any other movie yeah. ever made. Uh, if you ever want to see like a one-man show of me performing the whole, the entirety of the Matrix, uh, I should. I don't know if anyone would pay to see that, but I could do it. I think people would. Yeah, yeah. I'd be down for that. Yeah, yeah, we're first in line for that. Just Great. Let us know when it is. Yeah. I, yeah, I will. Yeah, it'll be off, off, off Broadway. Perfect. Next year. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like that is definitely a, the experience I had as well. I I remember so specifically telling my parents we need to get a dvd player so oh. that we can get the matrix <laughs> oh, yes. and, and that was the best christmas ever is when we i was like open the dvd player set it up put in the matrix go to the lobby scene and <laughs> yeah. just watch that over and over and over again and my really? parents were like this is very violent <laughs> <laughs> which it actually isn't in so many ways like so this was my first rated r movie that i ever saw whoa i know um very conservative like, like not even in theaters just like like ever in your life ever in my life wow. that i ever saw jurassic park was my first pg-13 movie the matrix was my the first same. rated r movie yeah. you pretty good choices yeah um, i did my best <laughs> well so the thing about the matrix is i so when i was in the summer of 2000, I was 14 years old, and my friend and I went to Guatemala and spent a month there. And it was like – it's its own story because it, it's this crazy situation where we're basically unsupervised in Guatemala for a month. <laughs> as 14-year-olds? As 14-year-olds. Okay. Like, it was very Mary Kate and Ashley Olsen movie, mm. kind of. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I remember we were in this hotel, and I came down one morning, and they were showing The Matrix – on a TV in the hotel lobby in this, like, small town in Guatemala. And I was like, what the heck is this movie? <laughs> and so, I, and it was, in, it was in Spanish. And so I sat down and I started watching it. And already it just, like, within seconds just grabbed me and hooked me so hard. I've got to ask, at what scene uh, was it when you first walked in? It was fairly early on. It was, like, right when he's sort of getting to there to meet Morpheus. Ah. And so I was just, like... My mind blown, you know. Morpheus jumps across the building and yeah, Neo goes, I got him. <laughs> <laughs> no. Oh, it, and then, yeah, about uh, when I got back to the States, I like made sure that I, because I obviously didn't sit there and watch it for the rest of that, you know. But just, I agree. I've seen it maybe more times than any other movie. I definitely have it entirely memorized. I think I had three posters on my bedroom wall as a teenager, and one of them was definitely The Matrix. Oh, yeah. Oh, but to be clear. In my childhood bedroom in my parents' house, which has been left intact, Whoa. the poster for The Matrix is still hanging from mm -hmm. that wall. Yeah. yeah. So good. Yeah. Brian, what was your experience of it, it was sort of lackluster, I think. Like, it came out the summer before. Not, like, my enjoyment of the movie, but uh, it came out the summer before my senior year of high school, and I didn't see it until my freshman year of college. And I saw it, like, I, you know on your T1 line in college, it's like downloaded a rip of it, a DVD rip and like watched it in my room. So that was like my first experience with the movie it was like very like 
a, a whimper, you know. <laughs> um, but then, of course, over time, I would watch it more and appreciate it, and like watch it on like friends, like you know, nice theatrical setups and that kind of thing. But it was just like I don't really have like a great sort of first time experience with yeah. the Matrix story. Yeah, you were in Guatemala as a fourteen year old, <laughs> right? Unsupervised. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so I it's it's such a cool like cultural like phenomenon movie yeah. where it's it was it did things that had never been done before but it was also really good it's like one of those rare times that like that like all those things happen at the same time yeah i i just remember watching it uh, i think my mom and i rented it and she did not get what was happening and so i could see that she was like very kind of like zoning out and like i'm confused about what it means and i'm like this is amazing what are you talking about we're in the matrix like this is like what reality must be so yeah i kind of want to just talk about all the the filmmaking things that you know it did things that no film had ever done before and was pushing visual effects forward in in this crazy way which i feel like looking back is really impressive considering how you know it it wasn't you know a property that already existed it was like this original thing but they were able to do these crazy visual effects and the bullet time and stuff and just the context around it being made was really interesting yeah well that was one of the craziest parts of their pitch really it was just like we want to do all of these amazing visual effects no one's ever done them and so the studio was kind of like nervous (laughs) um you know and obviously they weren't also super well-established filmmakers and stuff like that. So that was like, the, you know, with all the bullet time stuff, they shot regular footage as well in case bullet time didn't work because mm-hmm. it might not have, Yeah, which is crazy to think about now. What's also really interesting to me is just like the the team they assembled to make it because like, like John Gaeta, the guy who like sort of invented bullet time was like the visual effects supervisor. Uh, you know, he wasn't like a guy at Industrial Light and Magic. He was this guy from this like kind of new startup VFX company and that kind of thing. And like really a big part of it is like Joel Silver just kind of liked the Wachowskis from like, I think he like met them even before. I think he produced Bound as well. Right. And he just kind of like he just liked their sensibility. And since he was so powerful at Warner Brothers, he was able to kind of just like allow them to make stuff. Uh, even though they were sort of unproven and untested and just these new people with this these weird ideas. Do you know if you have the book The Art of the Matrix that they released years ago? A roommate of mine had it. So I cur- <laughs> I don't they took it with them when they left, but uh, I, I don't currently have it. It's very cool because uh, uh, like the legend of this is because again the Wachowskis never did a lot of interviews. Uh, but apparently the studio had trouble understanding the script and so and they had written some comic books like for this weird marvel imprint overseen by clive barker in like the mid 90s i think one was called ecto kid uh and they got some comic book artists like uh steve scross who had been drawing like wolverine and stuff like that to just storyboard the entire thing and the book is great because they're all there and it's basically like reading a comic book version of the movie. And so, and it's so clear, it's like pretty much shot for shot. And so you can look at that and just have an immediate visual reference for the whole thing. And it makes so much more sense. Right. Yeah. Cause the visuals are obviously such a huge part of it. And it's, it's such a fun blend of different like genres. Like I think I saw it just at the time that I was kind of like understanding what like noir was and like Hitchcock and there were like shots and I was like, Oh, that's kind of like a Hitchcocky shot. So mm-hmm. like it, it was that fun blend of just, you know, the action that a 13-year-old boy loves, but also the, like, artistry of, like, cool filmmaking happening, which I really appreciated. So I remember another book, uh, The Philosophy of the Matrix, ah, uh, yes. that came out around the same time. And I had a, a teacher, a philosophy teacher in college, and he was bringing up Descartes' brain in a jar theory, you know. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, like, all the kids in the class just kind of all looked at each other and were like, oh, like the Matrix, the Matrix. Right? And, <laughs> we then we, and then someone actually said it to him, and he's like, oh, I haven't seen I haven't seen that film or whatever. <laughs> we're like, oh, how weird. Like, what a great, like, opportunity for you to teach this thing through pop culture, and, like, you have no idea about, like, the biggest movie of the past, like, several years that come out. Yeah. It's pretty impossible to talk about the Matrix without talking about, like, the philosophical sort of, like, underpinnings of it that it, it's just, like... <sighs> It's one of those. <laughs> I, just, I love this movie. Uh, it's just one of those things where it somehow managed to perfectly balance all kinds of different imperatives. They had to make an amazing action movie. They had to push the envelope with action and like really nail that. They also had to like they did the script and had really 
deep, interesting ideas in it that really elevate it, you know, like it's so far above. It's such a cut above all of the other like sort of action movies of that time because of its ideas and its themes and how richly it engages all of them while managing to be visually stunning and incredibly exciting. It's just really, really impressive even now. Yeah, I think it's always it's always kind of a go to thing for me is like, what's what's your movie trying to say? You know, and I feel like especially with action movies, especially with 90s action movies, yeah. it was like, even if there's a theme somewhere buried in there, it's not really saying much. You know, it's mm-hmm. like the theme is like, don't be, you know, a terrorist. or whatever. It's like, <laughs> cool. Is that the theme of Die Hard? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> don't be a terrorist. Don't be a German slash English villain. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, and just like, you know, the story that is now widely known that Will Smith turned down The Matrix to do Wild Wild West. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, that's, like, those are two movies that came out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Something that I have obsessed over for maybe almost a decade now, and I'll never stop thinking about it, is uh, so if Will Smith had starred in The Matrix as Neo, it would be a de- very different film. Yeah. But that was also still the period of Will Smith's career where he was recording a song for each movie. <laughs> oh, yeah. And so that means... <laughs> and, and that same summer, the the spectacular single Wild Wild West, mm-hmm. uh, you know, was released. And so presumably, if he had started in The Matrix, there would be a Will Smith song called The Matrix. The Matrix. Wow. Yeah. I, I may have like spent time just uh, like like writing like hypothetical like lyrics for this. And... <laughs> Take the red pill. No, 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 no. Exactly. Uh, I. I could I could go on for a while about this because I've thought about like what Stevie Wonder song he would probably have sampled Sample. for uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh But yeah, that's just a thing that I like to think about a lot. Wow, I'm, I'm going to be thinking about this a lot now. <laughs> yeah, of course you are. Exactly. It's stuck in my head. This is what I wanted. Yeah, yeah. Like the, the casting is such an interesting thing. I remember watching the movie with a friend. You know, we had both seen it six or seven times, but. Then Neo does the thing where he flexes and dust comes off of his shoulders, you know? Mm, So good. Right. (laughs) And and we both kind of giggled like, okay, it's stupid, but like we also enjoy it, you know? And I was like, man, it would be really interesting to see if this movie had a a, a better quote unquote actor in it, you know? And then I said like Will Smith and Brad Pitt and Tom Cruise, like the people you hear were, were, and then then he just kind of laughed and he was like, yeah, but could you imagine Will Smith doing that? (laughs) Imagine Tom Cruise doing like flexing and like dust comes off it. And I think that's such an interesting thing about Keanu Reeves as like an actor he's like one of the biggest movie stars who like isn't known for like his acting ability as right. his number one like yeah, yeah. quality it's more just who he is and like mm-hmm. this sort of his personality and how it comes through in his roles and I, it makes me think about the sort of naivety of Neo like Daniel Radcliffe in the first Harry Potter or Mark Hamill in the first Star Wars where it's almost like their, I don't want to say inability to act, but their sort of inexperience with acting is like so appropriate for the character they're playing. And then add, not that like that's what the same with Keanu Reeves, but just mm-hmm. casting somebody who is that sort of like baby faced kind of naive, you know, as opposed right. to someone like John Wick who is like, like John Wick is a badass, you know, yeah. <laughs> even though like he has that sort of like puppy dog quality, but it's like Neo is just a guy who like works in an office and then suddenly is a superhero. <laughs> right. That's what's so funny to me about the idea of like Will Smith playing that role because he is so charismatic and has such a huge personality. And I think what works so well about Keanu in the role is uh he, there is this sort of just like this stillness and blankness to right. him. Like you believe that this is a guy who like doesn't talk to people for like long stretches of time and just sits there like not sleeping, staring at his computer, and he's really pale because he doesn't mm-hmm. get out in the mm-hmm. sunlight enough. Yeah, and uh, and and so and and because he has this sort of like this this blankness to him, you can kind of you get that he's just like trying to like uh, absorb all this information that is that is being like thrown at him, and uh, and at the same time, there's like this Zen quality that like emerges as the film goes on. Yeah. Right, and so he it like I can't imagine anyone else in that yeah. role. It's uh, like the thing that I always say about Keanu and part of why I've decided to devote a podcast <laughs> that I will do for a year of my life to him uh, is that I think he has a limited range, which is partly why he has mostly in the past been accused of being like a wooden actor or a bad actor. But he has a limited range that I think he came to understand over time. Like he came to realize like I shouldn't do accents or like I seem, <laughs> I seem yeah. out of place in period pieces. <laughs> but uh, But within that range, I think there are very few people who can do like what he does as well as him, which is why it's so hard to imagine anyone else playing Neo, anyone else playing John Wick, 
And uh, and he also just has a because he, he's kind of tall and a little bit lanky, mm-hmm. and he has like a great run, uh, like in this movie, like during the great foot chase scene. Yeah, and so just like his his physical performance and his movements are so striking and have become genuinely iconic. Right. Just, just movements he makes in this movie are like burned into like cinema history now. Totally. Right. You know, so this was my first Keanu Reeves movie ever also. So I didn't know any sort of context about who he was, like any, you know, perception of him that was sort of floating around already at that time. And so I never thought of him as being anything other than great as an actor. I was like, he's great in this role. What an actor that he is. And it's really interesting because I think that he has – it's what you were saying, Bri, where it's like he has this charisma to him where he's kind of a movie star and it doesn't really matter. His performance doesn't matter basically in any movie that he's in. Like no one is going to a Keanu Reeves movie to see a performance. They're going to see Keanu Reeves. So it kind of like he's amazing in this and you're absolutely right. His physicality is so central to the role and all of that has to do with obviously we can talk about it, his dedication mm-hmm. to the role and and all of the actors in terms of the training and the stunts and and just embodying, physically embodying uh, the parts that they're playing. But then, yeah, in this movie, he does exactly what the role needs. He he brings something to it. He is Neo, you know, like yeah. that's the thing. He is the one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, because I feel like it, the casting of all the characters, yeah. I think, plays such a big role. It's kind of like the Jurassic Park effect where it's yeah. a bunch of like not big name actors that let you kind of believe the world. And, yeah. You know, Lawrence Wait, Fishburne. Is had Lawrence Fishburne been nominated for an Oscar before this? Hmm. For? Was it for Ike Turner in What's Love Got to Do oh, With It? Oh, maybe, yeah. Uh, like he was the most established, right. I think. Well, he, maybe him or Keanu. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think Keanu was, you know, yeah, definitely a name. But like Carrie Ann Moss came out of nowhere. Right. Totally. And Joe Pant. Joe, Joe Pantoliano. Oh, I mean, yeah. Joey Pants. Joey yeah. Pants has yeah, been yeah, around yeah. He's... for, you know, like back to risky business. Right. Like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, bad boys. Yeah. The Fugitive. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. yeah he's he's always the guy you don't trust. Right. I never do. Yeah. What? What a good guy. <laughs> I, I I love him. I, yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's uh, you know, the, the sequels are another conversation, but I I do kind of feel like they're missing a character like him. Yeah. Mm. Just that you know, he kind of even though he's like turns out to be like a bad guy. He kind of provides a bit of like the Han Solo energy of like this mm-hmm. is kind of dumb, right? right? Right, right, yeah, yeah, and that's yeah. He gives voice to the the other side of the argument where everyone else wants to believe that like this thing that they're doing is like better, and it's better to be out here not in the Matrix, and it's nice to have that person that echoes the opposite. Yeah, I feel like he and Tank. Even Tank less so. They're the only people that talk like normal people <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> at all. No, Tank doesn't yeah. talk like a normal person. He just talks with a very specific, unique energy. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But just like being able to drop, you know, interjections into your into your dialogue and and being animated in any sort of way. <laughs> Everyone else than is so gravitas. stoic. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, but yes. Speaking of Carrie Ann Moss, who like. I like not a bad actor, but like just someone who like every role I've seen her in is that same. Uh, I have a little smirk on my face and everything is still a very, you know, like uh, in Memento or Jessica Jones. It's just like she's always kind of gives like Jessica the Carrie Jones, Ann Moss yeah. performance. I mean, still... She's fantastic in this. Sure. Though. Sure. Like... I'm not saying she's not. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and she has like because this movie like is, is so like the, the visuals are so important like she has the perfect look yeah she does uh, just like you know those the that opening 10 minutes just yeah. like every Ooh. like close up of her face yeah. is incredible and she's one of those people where i'm i'm like I, why didn't they become a bigger movie star mm. and uh well hey you know she was almost in uh, was it david fincher's mission impossible 3 that didn't happen oh. so who knows well, well, that's her own choices too though she's yeah. like you know was really specific after the matrix about what she would take and what she would not take and, right. and, and good for her about that too you know yeah and she also became a mom and stuff like that she picked, okay she picked you know she made her choices specifically in the 2000s and everything like that right. and then and then came back and now is doing stuff like jessica jones which she's awesome in and so yeah i just nothing but respect and love for Carrie Ann Moss. Oh, yeah. One of my favorite roles times. of hers is in the Mass Effect trilogy. She mm. plays oh. one of the... She's in that? Yeah. She plays the, like, the kind of 
uh, gangster overlord of one of the like rogue like asteroid planets and so she runs this like the whole planet is like a, a bar club and she's like the overseer of it and it's like cool it's like perfect for her it's yeah, just yeah, like yeah. like the like the kind of it's this great like combination of empathy and like badassness of like yeah. i don't care about you but for some reason i really like this person mm-hmm. that is like there's something more beneath it that draws you in yeah this episode is brought to you by visit williamsburg In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Well, think about that opening, not not the opening 10 minutes, which are amazing, but then so contrast that which we saw and i love the vulnerability in that's like mixed into her badassery there which i think is the kind of the thing you're talking about where yeah. when she's down at that bottom of the staircase and she's got her you know guns pointed at that tiny get window trinity, right get up trinity it's so good but then we go straight basically the next time we see her is in that club scene where she is like whispering in neo's ear and there's so much like i don't want to say the word warmth but just humanness to her in that scene that I think brings her into, you know, sort of the, I was going to say the love interest space, but just like the human space that Neo is also in, right? Because he's been nothing but sort of like this very average person. And obviously she's very extraordinary. So you have to kind of create that moment of intimacy there right at the beginning where they're like talking to each other in the club about this secret. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And of course, if we're going to talk about casting, <laughs> <laughs> yes, be doing Hugo weaving a disservice oh not to oh, not to spend a gosh, second on him. The best, <laughs> like too good. Yeah, yeah. Like yes. he's just too like because then he was just the bad guy and everything after that. Yeah. But I feel hey, like it was hey, never Elrond. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I, oh, think that's I, true. I, I saw true. I saw Fellowship of the Ring in the yeah. theater. And I think I'd either I think I'd seen the Matrix once, so I didn't really remember like who like Smith was or whatever. And as soon as Elrond shows up, like even in the prologue, I just hear like whispering everywhere. It's like oh, I in the Matrix. <laughs> <laughs> People just saying Mr. Anderson, right. right? And like literally every time he like showed up on screen, he was like Mr. Baggins. I feel like <laughs> I feel like that's why I didn't like trust him. That I feel like that took me out of the first Lord of the Rings movie because uh, I was just like Agent Smith is here. Like, don't don't trust him. Right. <laughs> He's taken over whatever this elf is. And he's one of those, like, uh, those funny, like, results of them shooting in Australia. Because, mm. you know, like, so much of the cast is just Australian people. Mm-hmm. Dude, not doing Australian accents. But it, it's like uh, the guy who plays Mouse. Yeah. Australian guy. It's why he ends up as Elon Sleazebagano in Attack of the Clones. Matt Doran. That's his name? Yeah, Matt ah, Doran. Yeah. Want to buy some it. death sticks? Okay, right? the, yeah. the, the the best of all characters yeah. in Star Wars, <laughs> but um, but yeah, it's just like what's fun about it is because they they shot in Australia. A lot of the cast is Australian, and so they're people that you don't recognize, right? So they're it's like it's like it, it almost helps us like believe the world more because like oh here's all these people I've never seen before, so I just they are their characters, right? And I, I think again that's why Will Smith would have probably ruined the movie. Like yeah. I think. Even if he had done a good job, it's that thing where, like, I don't know that there's a world in which I can believe Will Smith is a nerdy hacker guy. Right. Like, the same way. Right. Off of Men in Black. (laughs) Right. Like, he's... Well, also, yeah, we talked about this, but the physicality of it just doesn't make any sense, you know? I'm just trying to imagine him, like, jumping in the air and doing, like, the triple kick thing. Uh Like, what? It it, it feels off. I remember um, 28 Days Later feeling like... I, it made me sad when Danny Boyle and Ewan McGregor like got divorced, mm-hmm. uh, you know. Yeah. But then it was like seeing Twenty Eight Days Later. I just thought I'm really glad I don't recognize this per Killian Murphy. Yeah. At the, you know, at the time I was just like because it just helped me sort of believe this almost documentary style world. You right. Know? So it's totally like weird sometimes. When you're like, I'm glad an actor I love isn't in this role. <laughs> it's a strange <laughs> thing to to feel. Yeah. yeah. Also speaking of Men in Black, total side note: Agent Smith, one of the other two agents, is named Jones. And I just always appreciated when Men in Black was coming out that the actors who played the Men in Black are named Smith and Jones. And that was like the movie poster just said Mr. Smith, Mr. Yeah, Jones. Yeah, exactly. And I just feel like like what an underappreciated like yeah. thing that happened to happen <laughs> with that movie. Yeah. I mean, there are I, – I, I'm just quoting myself from a recent video I made. But uh, there are so many funny just like – 
kind of crossovers between Men in Black and The Matrix. Mm-hmm. Just, uh, I mean, so many of them are built around, like, you know, these these secret, like, underground worlds, like, uh, like you know, without our own. And then they've got the, like, the the classic, like, uh, black-suited government agents and stuff like that. And there's the thing that I'm going to point this out because I'm fascinated by it. This weird thing they both do in the final scenes of both movies where the sort of, like, the rookie or, like, the 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 novice has become, like, the master and, like, kind of, like, upgraded – he has a new outfit in the final scene. Yep. <laughs> with a collared shirt with no tie. Does Will Smith have like his like a like a Nehru collar on like in the final scene of Men in Black? It's like a very remember. unique look that he's got. Yeah. And um and I always like especially as a kid I was like, "Oh my god, Neo's got like look, he's got he's got a new new shirt <laughs> he has on a new here." Shirt. <laughs> yeah. At <laughs> uh I don't know. It's like every little stupid detail in this movie right. I love. Yeah. Talking about like weird crossover things. Trisha and I both separately noticed that both the Matrix and Avengers Endgame, the climactic moment is the villain saying something about inevitability yep. and the villain and, and the hero responding by saying his name. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's all just like obviously archetypal myth of the chosen one, like all of that stuff. Right. That's like the main character is he's Luke Skywalker. He's all the same person, you know, like the main character has to come into his own belief in himself and like realize that he is the person of the prophecy and has to do the thing and only he can do the thing and so i'm not complaining no yeah i love it it's pretty amazing how how they're able to do that so hard in this while also juggling all these other things yeah and that's kind of so i think trisha you you were the one that wanted to talk about the matrix and how it you know conveys exposition yeah and doing that through all these you know action scenes and all these different methods that Mm -hmm. keep you engaged in the film and doesn't just like pull you out because there's so much that has to get conveyed in this movie. Yeah, I mean, it's like the movie is sort of a masterclass because it has so much expository work to do. It has basically like half the movie very easily could be just expository work. You have to establish all of these previous events that happened before and, and you have to like figure out like all of the rules of the world as well and and all that has to be baked in there and then the different characters like perspectives on like what this prophecy is and blah 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 and you neo cannot find that out for himself in a lot of ways he has to sort of be told it as do we and so the fact that they are able to show us a bunch of stuff like right in that opening sequence that does right out of the gate establish so many of the rules of the world and all of that stuff. And then throughout, it's just like dropping the exposition exactly where it needs to go and not a second earlier where it would drag. It's I know you have some thoughts on this as well, probably, right? Oh, I totally Yeah, do. can you please? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, okay, so I think the opening 10 minutes, like the like sort of Trinity prologue yeah, yeah. is so essential to this. Yes. Because it tells us nothing. But it actually tells us everything in the, the dialogue between her and Cypher right it, at the top. It but does. we just don't know it. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It's all there, but we don't know what it means yet. But essentially, like, watching those opening, opening 10 minutes, like, you know, there's no exposition. It's it's just like a little short film about uh, this woman who uh, did something illegal. Cops try to arrest her. She has superpowers. Mm-hmm. The FBI agents have superpowers. <laughs> uh, she's talking to people on the phone. We don't know who they are. She seems like she's maybe a bad guy, but we like her anyway. She runs to a phone and disappears. Uh-huh. Uh, but essentially, like, we watch this, and it's exciting. It's, like, you know, like, gorgeously staged yeah. and shot and everything. And we just have a million questions. We just have, like, this whole, like, laundry list of questions that we want answered. Like, who is this? What does that mean? How can they do this? What is any of this? And then, and so, like, we just want to know everything. And then the movie eventually gives us all the answers. And they're, like, more satisfied. And, and, like, it it earns the giant, because it does do the giant exposition dump. Right. Where Morpheus sits down and is like, Yeah, here we go. Here's what the world is. Here's how all of it works. Here's what the Matrix is. And at that point, we're so, like, starved for this. And the answers, like, they're compelling. And also, a big part of, like, why I think the exposition dump works is that, like, there are visuals to all of it. And so it's not just someone just just talking and just dropping a bunch of information it's like we see all of it and so it it's yeah it's just so satisfying because we've been waiting for these answers and then they come and they're better than we could hope mhm i mean it also does 
you could frame it this way or you could think about it as being like exposition first and then logical sort of extensions of the rules that are already established. Mm -hmm. Or you could think of it as being like setups and payoffs. But like something with the EMP, for example, they set it up really tightly, quickly. There's tension. Yeah. Yeah. And it, they don't end up having to use it then, but it comes back right at the end. And then even right at the end, there's another logical sort of extension of the rule of the EMP that they drop a one line of exposition in, which is we can't use that until he's out. Like right there, where you're just like, oh, of course they can't. But I didn't think of that before. Oh, no. Like right. now he has to get out of the matrix. You know, it, it it keeps pushing its own rules and, and extending them out and out to their logical conclusions, but in a way that continues to feel surprising and satisfying. It's, yeah. it's such a tricky balance of yeah. like not over explaining, but also not under explaining, not getting to the point where like, why would, why is that happening? That doesn't make any sense. It's like, no, that does make sense because we learned about this other thing. Yeah. Right. And of course, you know, we have this sort of like a, you know, audience viewpoint character where uh, like, you know, who wants to, who wants to know everything that we want to know. And we're just with him as he's like, and, and he also makes choices that like uh, that we that we get, and like I I think such a, a, a an essential like moment of this movie is when he doesn't climb out on the scaffolding because uh-huh. yeah. that you know, yes 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 it's insane he's a human yeah yeah, like, yeah exactly and yeah. so like you know as much as like you know we want him to like do this and we want like we want him to find out the stuff that we want to find out. At this, there are limits to yeah. uh, to what he's going to do, and and I think that's really essential. I do want to also point out one thing. Like, there's one line of dialogue that I think is one of like the master strokes of this movie. Mm-hmm. Especially, uh, you'll know what I'm talking about. Especially when it comes to the marketing campaign, the fact that they wrote the line, "No one can be told what the Matrix is. Yeah. You have, have to, to see it for yourself." <laughs> and yep. To, to end the trailer with that line it's like they must not know what they were doing it's like we can put that in there and then like they're gonna want to know what it is yeah i, I feel like it, that is a really good point that keanu <laughs> neo refusing to go on the balcony like that that's a cool refusal of the call mm-hmm. moment mm-hmm. that like isn't just there just to have that happen but like like you're saying it humanizes him and like makes us buy into it but it also then interrupts the plan so it makes us want to know well now what's going to happen because he wasn't able to do that and i feel like there are just so many moments like that in this movie that are just so uh incredible and i feel like it's it's also such a clear example of like leaving the old world behind and going into the new world yeah, yeah. like I mean, it's a perfect – like, right. you know, I've lectured on – like, <laughs> there are certain movies that are – if you really want to dive into, like, classical structure, like, Wizard of Oz is one. Um, Disney's Beauty and the Beast is another. Th- th- this is the third one I always talk about. Like, yeah. you can really – the beats are, like, on the pages, the exact pages at the exact minutes. You can pause your DVD and be like, this is 15 minutes in, the refusal of a column. <laughs> this is 30 minutes in, leaving the world behind. Like, it, it goes through those – not, I think, because – the Wachowskis were trying to do that, but just because it is this archetypal mythic story, and so it it fits perfectly into that archetypal format, and obviously is executed masterfully. Right, it's so organic how it you know unfolds, and there's so many moments where it, multiple things are happening at once. Like I think Trisha, you were you brought up that you know in the dojo sequence when you know, Morpheus is fighting Neo, you know, we're watching an action scene, which is awesome and cool. But Morpheus is also like expositing to us about things we need to know and like telling Neo, like these are, you know, mm-hmm. blah, 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 blah. You're going to learn all these things. And then we also have back on the ship, everyone watching and reacting to it, yeah. which is like fun because that's like we are them also. We're the audience watching it. But the way they are reacting is revealing character about them. And so all these things are happening all at once in the midst of an awesome action scene. And the way they're reacting uh, tells us something about Neo also because they're like, oh, he's fast. Oh, but he didn't make the jump. Like, it's like, okay, there's potential here, but it's not just he's magically the one all of a sudden and that kind of thing. And it's like we're learning that through them watching through the screens basically yeah yeah that there's that there's so much doubt about whether or not he is the one is very effective and when you know yeah goes to see the oracle he doesn't believe it right Right. i think that's that is so essential and what makes it so cool and i I feel like it's it's almost like um i've been i noticed a lot of like horror movies that i like a lot the first you know half of the movie is just about like the setup and kind of getting you into the world and then the midpoint is when things really start happening and i feel like this is an interesting like kind of action version of that where the first half 
is just building up this world and getting you into it. And like the story is moving forward, but it's not until the like halfway point that things like the tension, the bad guys are coming now. And it really, I, I feel like that is a, an underused technique where I feel like you can make a really good first half of the movie that then makes the second half like explosive and so much fun because the second half is feels very different yeah. than the first half. It's a different movie. Yeah, I mean, in a lot of ways. That first half, I mean, a thing that always amazes me about The Matrix, I, I feel like it, it's almost like a perfect sort of film school or like you could just, okay, yeah. you could do like an intro to film class just using The Matrix because it's like the opening te- like 10 minutes. It's like, okay, so here we have, uh, you know, here's like, it's it nods to like, you know, classic like 1940s noir. Mm-hmm. Here is like our German expressionism shot. <laughs> uh, here, here, here is our, uh, you know, our vertigo shot. Mm-hmm. Something like that. Uh, here, here's the John Woo moment. Here's like, like each of these things. And then like the scene where uh, Neo goes to meet Morpheus, it's just like, gothic horror yeah just like the 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 way like the rain is falling off the building the lightning strikes to like reveal him it's like it the amount of of like i mean the 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 obvious references people always point to are like oh yeah so like kung fu movies and anime and john woo but there's it's so film literate yes and there's so much in there and uh which i think often gets overlooked yeah and the production design i mean yeah this movie, let me double check, but okay, so it did not win for production design. Uh, it won for one Oscars for visual effects, editing, sound, and sound editing. Yeah, four. It's pretty good. Four Oscars for this movie, which yeah. all of which are mightily deserved. But also, the production design is incredible. Like every single like think about that that scene you're talking about with that like abandoned like the mansion the yeah. room with the think about how iconic morpheus's red chair is now right. right that's straight brilliant production design like all of the the like the contrast between like the nebuchadnezzar with the wires leading to everything and all right. the metal and the joints of the metal and all of that stuff i'm once again going to, to like, uh yeah to recommend that Art of the Matrix book, which so I think good. is out of print. But because uh, for all the real world stuff, they got Jeff Darrow, who's this great comic book artist who had not worked on movies before, I think, to just design all of it. And in this book, they have these like fold out pages and it's just his pencil drawings. And it's like they took every little line he drew uh, on these like really, really dense pages and just made it into live action. It's just this like insane sci-fi stuff that they... That's translated exactly from the page. Think about how scary the Sentinels look. Yeah. Like the design of that is just and like how gross the pod is when he wakes up in it. It's yeah. like dirty it's like and smeary uncomfortable and gross. looking. Yeah. It's right. Really good. And just what a I guess not really a pun intended, but like what a like a rude awakening that is. Because <laughs> to that point yeah. in the movie, yeah. we haven't seen anything that resembles that at all. It, it basically just like switches genres hard in like a second. Totally. And uh, that's kind of what I'm always impressed by in that moment is that it it works because I feel like it it comes just at the right time where you're allowed to do that and like introduce something completely different and just the momentum behind like the build up to it and then the momentum it's just like this relentless like reveal of thing after thing that just keeps you in it and it's like okay this i guess is also the world of this movie and yeah i feel like it just it nails that so hard and that it takes time for neo to like pick him up in the ship and then they have his muscles have atrophy and all this stuff that i feel like i appreciate when movies take the time you know, allow time to pass in a realistic way and let us settle in and, and right. buy things have happened. Because that point when he wakes up in the pod could so, e- like, if the groundwork hadn't been laid for, like, the half hour or so before that, that could so easily be the moment that people just check out mm-hmm. and just like, what is this? Right. Like, this is nonsense. Yeah. Because the more you're asking yourself the question, like, you're, by that point in the movie, there's, no one's leaving the theater. No, no one's going, yeah. I don't care what is going on. <laughs> you yeah. know, it's like, please tell me. So every little clue that you get from when he wakes up until, I mean, after he wakes up, I think it's 20 minutes of exposition. Yeah. You know, yeah. Other than like some quick little scenes and stuff like that, it's basically just 20 minutes of like, here are all the answers to all the questions. But it's like they spent the first 30 minutes of the movie telling invest- you nothing. Yeah. Getting you so invested that by the time he wakes up, you're like, cool, I'm here for it. Like, what, let's let's go. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. 
Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The pacing is, I mean, this is all just related to everything that we've been talking about, but just the pacing and the confidence to not explain and not explain and not explain. And even when we get that exposition dump right there, sort of at like minute 35 or, or 40 right there, like there's still plenty we don't know because there's still plenty Neo does not know. Like what's the Oracle? What is the Oracle? What's We've been hearing one? about it. Yeah, exactly. And then and, – and that was sort of like one of the things that I I can't get over with this movie is – some of those moments where they give you a piece of information two seconds before you need it. So like the moment where Cypher is like, I'm going to unplug them and they're just going to die is two seconds before he does exactly that, where you're just like, wait, wait, no, no, what? And you can't, you know, the moment with the black cat is another one where I just love it so much. He's like, deja vu. And she's like, that's a glitch in the matrix. We're all going to die. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, right now? Like it was just a black cat. It, it they give you that information only right when you need it. And also there's this, the great line from APOC, uh, which is, I hope the Oracle gave you some, some good, good news. news. Yeah. yeah. It's so good. I also like, it's such a subtle thing, but I like the cat shot because you see it from two different camera angles because Neo has moved from one staircase mm-hmm. to another. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, it's such a simple thing, but it like lets you know like, oh, you're seeing the same thing, but from a different angle. And that's weird. It's just like, it's enough to feel off. You know? yeah. It's not actually what deja vu is. Anyway, sure, like seeing right. a cat walk by twice is right. Not but, really yeah, that always kind of bothers me. But like, how, <laughs> how do you convey deja vu? But, but I think that was one of the fun parts about the Matrix too, is that it, it introduces these ideas that like you know that can make you wonder if you're in the Matrix. Like, oh yeah, deja vu is actually this thing. And I feel like movies in the '90s did more of that. Like, I don't know that we have that anymore. That like actually the world that you're living in isn't real. Like, there's the. I have a great example of that. Um, it's a Philip K. Dick book called Time Out of Joint, and like fast forward, you find out that like this like nice 1940s world is actually like a simulation that people are unwittingly living in, and the year is actually like 1990 something, and they're basically being. It's not the matrix but it's kind of like we're at war with the moon and the people in the simulation are helping like come up with like this the coordinates to like stop miss- it's like all this crazy stuff because it's philip k dick that sounds amazing yeah. but <laughs> yeah it's, it's a fun read but the really th- interesting thing they did was like the main character goes into a closet and he goes to like pull a string to turn on the light and there's no string there and it's a switch and he comes back out and he says when did we change and they said there was never a string there and he's like oh okay, I don't know why I I did that. And you start to realize like he's remembering his past life, but it's so cool because the way it sets it up is those things that we actually experience in life. It's the Mandela effect. Okay. Yeah. Do you know what I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah, I know the, the term. But Patrick Shazam, will now ex- Kazam. Yeah, Patrick will now explain the Mandela effect to you. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know if I'm the one that's qualified to, but I'll, I'll give it a shot. It's it's these weird, like, you know, commonly held beliefs of things that it's not even that, like, they're myths. It's just somehow we all just came to, like, the popularly cited version. Berenstain is, Bears? Yeah, the Berenstain okay, Bears. Okay, yeah, that's, yeah. that's that one. Or like that uh, that Sinbad starred in a movie called Shazam where he played a genie in the 90s, which doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. Shaq starred in Kazam. Right. But that's it. And uh, and the Mandela thing is that like the belief that was that like Nelson Mandela, Mandela like died, died in yeah. prison. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, which people, didn't happen. And people like remember like they have memories and these are like we're talking thousands of people across the world like no i remember i watched like the funeral on tv i remember the newscaster telling me that he had like died in prison and like the same thing i the the berenstein bears one is the one that i can't like my <laughs> cuz my mother we had all of those books and my uh-huh. mother's a children's librarian and i was like i know that this is the reality and it certainly is not um and so yeah it just that philip k dick thing seems like it's right. speaking to that weird collective memory of like an alternate reality did what but, did we all live in a world where the berenstein bears was different right. <laughs> like, uh yeah the only difference being i think it's more your personal thing it's like those personal moments where you just like walk into a room and you're like wait a minute wasn't the isn't this where like my keys were or something like that those like silly little things not those like big collective consciousness things right but yeah same which is also general, kind of yeah. similar to the the movie that is similar to the matrix dark city Oh, oh yeah, I've yeah. not seen that in a long time. Which came out the year before and shot oh, on really? the same sets mm-hmm. in uh, Australia. That same rooftop that Trinity runs across in the opening 10 minutes, 
It's in Dark City. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I feel like the Mandela effect thing like freaks me out not because I'm like, <laughs> oh, there's this alternate reality, but I think it just highlights so clearly the fallibility of human memory. Yes. And like the suggestibility and all these things. And it's that's what makes me uncomfortable sometimes thinking about it. And I think that, I think things like phenomena like that are reasons why a lot of us got obsessed with the matrix because it messes with you where like especially in the late 90s where there was all all kinds of anxiety about like the internet and (laughs) y2k yeah this idea that like consciousness might not be what we think it is or like we our perceptions are so limited our we our inability to know ourselves all of these things that are like thematically in there and i feel like again it's the big ideas in the matrix that hook you and then the action is just like the action is just the the vehicle by which you get to think about all of this stuff that that does kind of end up being a splinter in your brain you know driving you mad driving you mad yeah <laughs> i think also like it's it's fascinating we talked about minority report um a, a couple months ago and these movies that sort of like they become the collective consciousness of how you talk about something mm, like yeah. to this day i probably in the past two weeks was like explaining something to somebody i'm like yeah it's hard at first but eventually you start to see the matrix like just like <laughs> that's just like a term that we use nowadays if you're whether you're talking about like story structure or like a spreadsheet or whatever it's like you you get to the point where you can look at something and and just sort of get it but it takes a while to get there. And it's like, yeah, we say see the Matrix. The more AR comes up and stuff, people are like, oh, yeah, Minority Report. Like, obviously, Star Trek's like the big one of those. But it's like these things that just have like have like stuck in the collective consciousness of like now we talk about things in terms of this one movie from 20 years ago and everyone still knows what you're talking about. Yeah. And I, and I just find it fascinating, the idea that we could all be in a simulation and there's no way to know and there's even you know depending on what scientists people you ask you could argue that there's a very good chance that we're in a simulation michael is this where you reveal that you're like a matrix truther (laughs) (laughs) surprise but yes we got a lot of questions on twitter and from patrons and we'll address most of them in our patron q a but the one one i think would be fun to do here is would you take the blue pill or the red pill Trisha, do you want to go Because you're shaking your head. (laughs) I'm shaking my head like, don't ask me, Michael. Exactly. I mean, I I have to say the red pill, right? Like, I'm also the kind of person that would, because if you really think about that choice in like a realistic way, which is less fun to do, but like if you think about that choice in a realistic way, it's insane to take either one. Guys, don't take pills if you don't know what they are. (laughs) (laughs) You meet a weird man in an abandoned building and he's like, here, take a pill. And you're like, yeah, that seems good. A man, a man who's wearing sunglasses at night indoors. <laughs> the coolest. They are the coolest sunglasses. Oh, they're so cool. Yeah. I like really wanted those sunglasses. I spent a lot of time like buying sunglasses after the Matrix came out. <laughs> Didn't hoping we all? it would make yeah. me look cool. And yeah. it never, it never did. Yeah. yeah. Also the way he puts them on. Right. Just yes. like there's no like yeah. the back that just sits well, on well, the nose. That's a thing. That, sorry to derail the conversation. No, go, go. Yeah. But so many little things in the Matrix. It's like they took a common things with a slightly unique like visual twist where it's like Morpheus's sunglasses they have no like the 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 wings that fit over your ears the uh I mean the cell phone that we all wanted where the mouthpiece pops out the the car the car is so cool with the suicide doors yes so cool (laughs) just these little things that especially that like me as an 11 year old just watching I was like that well, that's a cool car. That, the trench coats. The, the, the mm-hmm. coats. Yeah, <laughs> uh, they they just would always pick like the the unique, uh, like everyday item um, that would just stick with us. Production design. Uh, I, I also so like good. like the fashion of the real world. Like I like yeah. those like tattered, mm-hmm. oversized shirts and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah, I, I like too. that just as much as the. They're all frayed. Uh-huh. Like, yeah, it's really cool. Yeah, they're all pulling them off too. Oh, I'm totally. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, but I would take the red pill. I'm the kind of person that like. I if there's something more exciting and dangerous and I probably shouldn't, that's the one I usually pick. So Morpheus has not in any way explained what those pills are. He just takes them out of like sort of this silver cigarette case and is like, here they are. You want to know how deep the rabbit hole goes. I, I do. I do. What about you, Pat? <laughs> like, I'm not proud of this, but probably the blue pill. It's like uh, the idea of like getting bad news, which is kind of what the red pill is. It's like, ooh, I might find out things I don't really want to know. Ignorance is bliss. The steak is juicy and delicious. Oh, your cipher? Yeah. I, well, no, I'm, I'm not going to murder my friends. <laughs> you know, I, I'd rather just uh, sleep in a comfortable bed, even if it's not real. 
but okay. I can I can believe it's real. Yeah, that's probably that, uh, being honest. That's my answer. I'm nice. gonna I'm gonna get on board with you there. Yeah, I think I think the blue pill is the safer choice for sure. I mean, I, and and I think what you were saying, Trisha, is that Morpheus really does not provide you with enough information to make <laughs> an educated choice. So I feel like that's what I also like about Cipher is like I get it, I empathize with yeah. that. Where it's like, oh, this is what the red pill meant. Like if you had told me that, I would not have taken it. <laughs> like this is kind of BS that you made me do this. Yeah. So yeah, I think that's just. It is an interesting idea to think about of like, is it better to live in a fake world where things are better or the real world where you might yeah, die? Yeah, for, for me, it's like I'm 100% red pill like because I want to know the truth of everything. Like that's just that's my nature. The, so the question for me is not whether or not to take the red pill. It's whether or not to not kill your friends, but whether or not to like be allowed to be put back in where you don't remember anything, like if you're miserable, you know. And I was thinking about it and I thought, well... It's not it's not fun. Like if you're if you're, you know, suddenly famous like an actor, Mr. Reagan, because <laughs> some reason he wants to be Ronald line. Reagan. Someone yeah. important. Yeah, <laughs> someone important. Um and uh like that's not necessarily fun to just like, oh, suddenly I'm like rich but I don't remember anything. I think it's like more fun to like know that you're controlling the world. <laughs> so it's like I would be like the get me a date with the woman in the red dress kind of person where it's uh. like I want to know what the real world is but also be able to kind of go on vacation in the matrix and like even like if in that program I can like make myself forget about the real world for like a, you know a day or something but then come back to reality like I would probably want to walk that that weird middle line. If that okay. Sense. So it's the it's the Hannah Montana answer. You want the best of both worlds. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Cypher is an interesting character because he is relatable in the sense that there is something so, you know, they, they go to great trouble to make the real world unappealing. <laughs> like, the food looks the so food gross. food is right. really right. troubling. There's that one, there, there's the cut from the steak to like the goop that they're yeah. squeezing out of the tube. Yeah. So they, they do all of that. And, and I think they, they do lay enough groundwork where you get why Cypher would be upset or dissatisfied, obviously, with his life. I don't know if there's enough, like, he does seem to be more ideologically angsty, like, angry at Morpheus for a philosophical reason that I'm not sure is ever exactly clarified. But I don't know. Do you have any thoughts? I think a, a bit more of that, I think there's some more light shed upon that in Reloaded, okay. actually, because that's when you see, like, back in Zion, like, Morpheus is kind of like this, like, religious fanatic, right. and a lot of people don't feel, like, like mo no one feels as strongly as, as he does, and so Cypher ends up on this ship with, like, the most extreme guy yeah. who's all about believing this one thing. That's, while I have, like, incredibly mixed feelings about Reloaded, I think that's an interesting thing they add to it. Yeah. I really appreciated the doubt of Reloaded. Like, that, mm, yeah. like I kind of defended that movie when we saw it, because I was just like, I really like that they're putting the doubt in our minds, which then the third movie was like, nah, he's the one, it's fine. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. But if, yeah, if you do think about it objectively from Cypher's perspective, like Morpheus believes that there is a prophecy that some dude will be, and they've clearly like tried to find this person like before and like, yeah, they've gone through this process and it is a kind of insane idea uh, that there's just a magic person that you're going to find that right. will save right. the world somehow. Yep. <laughs> and I like that they, they do a better job than some other stories that lean into this archetype. Like, think about Harry Potter. Harry doesn't have to believe he's the one, essentially. Literally everybody around him believes it. Dumbledore believes it. Every other person in the wizarding world believes it. His belief is irrelevant to his role sort of as the one. And I like that this movie, going back to the doubt part, all of it is about Neo's doubt. The other characters' beliefs about whether or not he's the one matter plot-wise, but not as much as Neo's own belief about whether or not he is the one. And the entire arc relies on that. And I think that's why the ending feels so earned. And also he just flies away in his rage against the machine. It's like, great. You know, right. no problems with it's that. It's like the best ending. Yeah. Yeah. With with the, the most, the best, while well, also the most on-the-nose music choice imaginable. Yeah. <laughs> Wake oh, up. I rage the against the machine. Yeah. Yeah. But it's perfect. And the way they time, like, 
the camera movement mm-hmm. to the song. It's unreal. It's one of those moments that's been put on film that is just perfect. Like yeah. everything is just working. And I'm endlessly together. obsessed with uh with the the barest hint of like the fourth wall breaking smile at the camera Keanu Reeves gives. Mm. Mm. It's like barely detectable, but he looks in the camera and there's like the tiniest twitch. Ah, it's perfect. It's perfect. Uh, Matrix. Good movie. The best. <laughs> Good movie. Awesome. So why don't we uh quickly go around and say what we've been watching recently what we'd like recommend to people i'm going to say barry and i'm a little bit late to the barry party Mm -hmm. but i very much enjoyed barry i'm enjoying that it's a a, an interesting blend of genres where it's it's very comedic and goofy on one hand but then it's like breaking bad style like serious uh consequence drama on the other hand and it's it's somehow pulling that balance off mostly it's the fastest i've gone through a show recently because it was just like well i have to keep watching this now so you you watched season two yes so you got to the best episode yeah well so well i don't want to spoil (laughs) it yeah no just all right we'll we'll talk about this later (laughs) but barry thumbs up brian uh mine's a little uh obvious but it's true uh, I went and saw uh, John Wick Chapter 3. Mm-hmm. Um, I got, was invited to a screening where there was a Q&A afterwards with Chad Stahelski and I think the editor and sound editor, I believe. And first of all, the movie is just bonkers. Like, it's it's just, it, it reminded me, I think maybe Mad Max Fury Road is the only other time I've just sat through an action movie and just been like, this is so <laughs> fun. And like, like they're just delivering. And like, I don't really care about like whether I think that anything is good here. It's just like, <laughs> I'm just having a good time. And, uh, and then like Chad Stahelski has a really interesting like philosophy about action, about how it should be driving the story forward. And, and, you know, the things that seem obvious, but just the way he talks about it from such an action lovers perspective is really cool. Um, but then the interesting thing was, I saw it with my girlfriend who had seen two and three and not seen one. Oh, uh, so she doesn't know about the dog, uh, right? Exactly, and that's that was the interesting thing um, because I remember the reason I liked one was because I I enjoyed the story of it, and then when I saw two, I was just like, eh, like he just shows up and they're like, go on this side quest, and then like that two hours later, and three sort of did a little bit more with story and and sort of making you care about the character, but it was also just so much fun that it kind of got away with it. But then she and I went and we watched one the other night, uh, John Wick one, and it was cool because just in 20 minutes, she's like, okay, I get it now. Uh And it just, I thought about movies like John Wick and Taken where only have 15 minutes maybe to get the audience invested. But once they're invested, they're just like, go kill everyone. (laughs) Like, uh, yeah, I think um, the the best example I can think of is um, uh, Laura in Logan, Daphne Keene's character, where she and Logan like, just start like murdering people at the end of the movie and it's like so emotionally satisfying in a way that I'm not sure that I'm comfortable with but it's yeah. like it's like I love watching you kill these people so much <laughs> but it's because I'm because you really made me so emotionally invested in the characters and stuff so yeah it's just an interesting kind of kind of um, study on on storytelling. Well, I know you recently talked about the John Wick movies on your Can't Get Enough of Keanu podcast. That's true. But they're so fascinating like culturally as like a phenomenon as like a moment of Keanu's career and like their popularity and how successful they've been I mean it's yeah that's some nerd stuff that I'm really into (laughs) awesome well Trisha what have you been watching so I've been going lately down a rabbit hole of documentaries about difficult film productions so I started by watching Lost in the Mantra which I hadn't seen which is so good and then I watched Burden of Dreams, um, which is about uh, Werner Herzog making Fitzcarraldo in the Amazon, where he, like, had to... The movie came out in um, 1982, but he had to, like, pull a steamship over a mountain to do this movie. <laughs> it's like... And, and Burden of Dreams, the, the documentary about it, it just, like, it's a nightmare from start to finish. Like, and everyone is insane. Klaus Kinski plays the main character in that movie, and he's out of his mind. And Werner Herzog is out of it. It's like... Because Werner Herzog is always, always out of his mind. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a really interesting doc. But then the one that I've watched recently is Full Tilt Boogie, which is about the making of From Dusk Till Dawn. Oh, wow. no, I haven't seen this. It is really interesting. Uh, so Full Tilt Boogie came out the year after From Dusk Till Dawn. So it came out in 1997. And it's sort of like 
peak Tarantino at his most, like, I am the best indie filmmaker you have ever seen. <laughs> He's like sort of very Ozymandias about like all of it. And they're like shooting out in the middle of the desert. It's, you know, over 100 degrees. They like set this, the saloon set that they built, they like accidentally set it on fire. Oh like, God. and the production designers losing their mind. And then like everyone is partying at this random like bar in the middle of the desert. And like Clooney's there and he's only done, like it's his first movie, right? He had only done E.R. And so it's just like the thing I like a lot about Full Tilt Boogie is that the name definitely that (laughs) but also in a lot of these docs the the documentary filmmakers are sort of following around the directors right they're like here's this auteur I need to follow him around and like to get into his mind and see his thought process Full Tilt Boogie is not about that it is mostly about the below the line people so like two of the main sort of characters in it are Clooney's assistant and Tarantino's assistant and like the camera follows them around and like follows the crew around and, and all the like stunt people and they're like b- weird vampire makeup and stuff it's it's interesting and it's a good watch it's one of the things I liked about the Game of Thrones making of documentary mm. that they released after the finale is that it it's about you know the like costume designer and one of the extras cool. and like you're just like following them around and i feel like it gives a much better picture of yes. what it's like to make a movie or a show and like actual life on set totally still can't watch from dust till dawn without just wishing that like the first 20 minutes or 30 minutes was what the movie was <laughs> and, and not like now it suddenly becomes like goofy <laughs> like it is two different movies yeah, yeah it really is i love john hawks at the beginning of that movie mm. in the like I forgot he was in there. With, He's uh, great. Oh, my um, God. Yeah. Uh, Michael Parks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's really good. Patrick, what have you been watching? I realize what I'm, I'm going to mention is uh, another sort of uh, movie that is two movies in one. Um, so recently... Uh, this past weekend, uh, because they did a there's like a 4K restoration of it at the Metrograph in New York, where I'm from. I went to see Takashi Miike's audition, which is a movie I love that I hadn't seen in years. And I got to see it with friends who had never seen it, and it's a great movie to see with people who haven't seen it. And uh, it's uh, not not a movie for everybody. It's intense, but it's fun because like you know Takashi Miike, this you know prolific Japanese director who's you know made. I think he, he made. He's made over 100 movies now. And a lot of his movies are like sort of gonzo, like ultra-violent Yakuza films and stuff like that. And Audition, which is 20 years old, is pretty restrained for him. It's um, it's like the first, without getting into too much spoiler territory, the first half is very much a sedate kind of like a sort of funny romantic drama. Have you guys seen it? Mm-mm. No, someone was telling me recently that I should watch it and then they told me more about it and I was like... <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, it's uh, so the, the the first half is one thing, and then there is a scene halfway through. Uh, can we swear on this podcast? Or do yeah. we not? Yeah, it's fine. Okay, uh, there's a scene in the middle of the movie, right in the center, where it immediately turns into a deeply fucked up film, uh. Uh, and then it escalates to a harrowing final twenty minutes or so. That I uh, had, I looked around and saw like people in the theater like hyperventilating and like l- losing their Jesus. minds uh, because it's it can it's hard to watch, um, but it, it's it's a, a really like fascinating horror movie, um, and it's also fun to see like a sort of I guess like a gear shift movie is what they're called sometimes, mm. uh, where it's like like from dusk till dawn, yeah. it suddenly in like one moment it becomes it changes genres pretty much and um it's it's very restrained and builds to a kind of gonzo finale uh but like if if you're up for that sort of i guess extreme kind of thing i think it's really fascinating it leads to like a lot it's beautifully made uh and really leads to like a lot of just interesting discussions and you can like I'm, i'm sure there's lots of think pieces about it framed through like you know gender and feminist lenses and stuff like that but uh audition good movie uh check it out <laughs> Awesome. Cool. Well, yeah, uh, Patrick, thank you so much for joining us and yeah. chatting about The Matrix. Uh, anytime. You picked my favorite topic. Excellent. Thank you. I want to talk me. about it for four more hours. So. Yeah, I know we could. So that's why I'm going to stop us now before we go off the rails. Um, but Patrick, where can people find you? Uh, so, you know, like 
these folks. Uh, I make YouTube videos where I talk about movies. Uh, the channel is just Patrick H. Willems. Uh, it's my name. And there's uh, I have videos about The Matrix. I recently made one about The Matrix sequels that almost killed me, but I got through <laughs> it. Um, and and uh, I and then I recently launched uh, a new a new podcast that I co-host with Matt and Jake Torpy uh, back in New York called Can't Get Enough of Keanu, uh, where we explore the entire filmography of that great, ageless, enigmatic Canadian actor, movie by movie. <laughs> we begin with the John Wick trilogy and then jump back to the beginning of his career and work our way through. Uh, and so, look, I've got a lot of Keanu, sorry, Keontent. No! Uh, no. no. <laughs> I, I'm so sorry. Um, I'm always here for the puns. Yeah. And so that's out, you know, on all the podcast platforms. Yeah. Awesome. And we'll have links in, in the show notes. Yeah. If I could that, plug really sure. quick your Matrix sequels video, I, mm. I was telling these guys, like, I really appreciate that instead of just saying, let me show you how I can rewrite this. You're like, let's use as much of the original content as possible, yeah. but sort of restructure it in a way where it actually follows logically. Mm -hmm. And I think that's so refreshing, especially post Game of Thrones season eight, where it's like, yeah. everyone's just like, here's how I could have done it completely better. You're like, no, I like so much of what they did. Here's how we could maybe look at it through a different angle. I thought that was really cool. Thank you. Sort of like the script doctor challenge mm -hmm. of like, I'm, I'm not going to write fan fiction and just redo it from the ground up right. and uh, make like my dream movie. It's like, how can we just take what's there and just see if we can fix some of the problems? Yeah. And I think too, like probably a lot of us in our generation have tried to pretend that the Matrix sequels don't exist <laughs> for like a long time. And it's just, it's, it's not worth doing. We can be more mature than that. We can look at them. And I, I think that that's good. I, I'm actually really curious. I know it's going to be a while before your podcast gets to the Matrix and the <laughs> yeah. Matrix sequels. But like, I'm super interested to hear what you guys have to say. I will say I, I have a ton of respect for those movies, even if I find them very frustrating, uh, because the, the Wachowskis are never lazy. No, they are um, not. They're ne like like they, they took that opportunity and they decided to do like the most ambitious thing imaginable with it. And uh, I respect that. Same. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening. And we will see you in the next episode. Goodbye, Mr. Tucker. <laughs> <laughs> that was great. <laughs>